DNS, DHCP, IPAM, and traffic steering delivered as SaaS, supporting your internal and public applications deployed in the cloud, a CDN, or your own facilities, serving your users no matter where they are. That is sponsor NS1 in a nutshell. Find out more about NS1 at ns1.com slash packet pushers. For your free account and some swag, that's ns1.com slash packet pushers. We welcome back to Heavy Networking, two guests deep in the guts of what's going on with all the modern trends in networking, cloud native and containers and Kubernetes and so on. And if you live in that world, there's a possibility that one or both of these guests contributed code to the projects that push your packets around. In this show, Brent Salisbury and Dave Tucker are going to give their insider's view of what's been going on in cutting edge networking tech you'll walk away with a better idea of what to pay attention to as new-to-you companies, acronyms, and open-source projects hit the networking landscape in the months and years to come. Brent and Dave, welcome back to Heavy Networking. Dave, I'm going to go right over to you because before we hit the record button, we were talking about uh, eBPF, and you're doing work with eBPF. And uh, Dude, what are you working on? Can, what can you talk about? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing lots of stuff with eBPF. Uh, it's, a very, it's a very new space, and it's a very fast-moving space. But I'm currently looking at how we can get more developers into that space. Because right now, if you're not a kernel developer and you're trying to get into doing something with eBPF, it's a really, really steep learning curve. So a lot of work I'm doing at the moment is figuring out how we can bring higher level languages and things into this eBPF ecosystem. Now, someone just realized that I didn't say eBGP, that I said eBPF, and you're responding, and you said kernel, and so on. So let's take a step back. What is eBPF? Okay, so eBPF is a magical technology inside the Linux kernel. And what it allows us to do is where once upon a time you had kernel modules that would extend how the kernel works, we now can load in eBPF programs, which are general purpose programs, which can extend the functionality of the kernel. So if you want to do something different in networking, there's a whole bunch of hooks where you can load in these programs. The cool thing about these programs is that they are verified to be safe before they're loaded into the kernel. So you can't crash it. And it's really nice from a support standpoint because, hey, like it's just the kernel. Uh, there's no like crazy modules and, and that floating around anymore. Nothing's tainted. Nothing's wrong. So, uh, and from a use case perspective, we're, we're sitting down at the kernel so we can actually see what's going on in packets before maybe they're encrypted, for example. So a couple of uh, eBPF use cases I've seen come up. Cilium just announced their beta program as we're recording this regarding their eBPF flavor of a sidecar proxy for a service mesh. And then there's another startup called Arali Networks. They're doing security by looking at what's flowing through the kernel right down to a command line level, able to see what's being sent to and from uh, a workstation at that level. So it's very interesting and a different place to jump into the data stream and inspect what's going on. Right. Like we, we've got two, two cool ways of, of doing it that I kind of separate out in my head. The first one is, like you mentioned with the use cases there that are like, okay, I've got some processes on a Linux machine that are trying to send packets to each other. I can grab that as soon as the process tries writing to like, you know, a file descriptor or something. You can be like, aha, you're trying to send packets over here. Just skip the network stack. Like, mm. who cares, like, about TCP and accounting and all this other stuff? Mm. Like, glue mm. this socket over to this socket and boom, connect really fast. And that's a really cool side of things. But the other side as well on the networking is a technology called XDP. And where that is really cool is that we can grab packets straight off the neck. So they've literally been copied into memory. 
and now we've got this copy of the packet and we can do something to it. Um, and that's where you have people that are building things like low balances and firewalls and other things where you have a, a box somewhere that needs to do a lot of high-performance networking. Uh, XDP is like the way of doing that. Uh, so if you need to drop a lot of packets with DDoS protection, you can use XDP for that. thing about eBPF too is it, it, so what you're hinting at, I think, or what I'm getting from this is that in Linux, we used to have the situation where the, the packet came in off the NIC and then it would interrupt the CPU with a non-maskable interrupt. So the CPU would literally, for every packet it would receive, the CPU had to halt clear the buffer on the NIC and then uh, unhalt or uninterrupt, put it in, you know, put the packet into a memory location and then go back to processing what the apps do. And that's largely to do with the architecture of the era because packets, you know, 10 meg Ethernet wasn't such a big deal. <laughs> you know, it was kind of, you know, but time's moved on, right? You know, we're running sort of like, you know, at 25 gigabits per second, it's not too bad because you're not using up, as I understand it, an entire CPU core. But when you get to 100 gigabits per second, you're talking about a whole, you know, core or multiple cores actually being allocated just to clearing packets off those ports when you're running at line rate. Yeah. If you think about it, like all of the processing that happens in the network stack is in that IRQ context. So like you've taken that packet and then you need to do all the stuff like, oh, is it TCP update all my TCP stats? Like which socket's listening for this thing? All right, I'll grab it. I'll go send it over here. And if you're doing that at 100 gig, um, yeah, that, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of CPU time. Um, so th that's where technologies like XDP are great because you can just... You know, you you can protect the CPU in some ways. Uh, you know, you don't have mm. to go through the entire network stack if you like. Now this yeah. packet's just going straight back out. Like, just just save the CPU, just send it straight back out again. Yeah, um, yeah. Just so with eBPF and SmartNIC, so what, I've got to be in my bonnet about SmartNICs because I think they're actually a major transition mm -hmm. in the industry. This idea that the SmartNIC is a computer in its own right. And it's got a CPU, actually, it's got a cluster. So it usually got like eight or 16 ARM cores. It's got a high-speed ASIC doing, you know, packet munging and a range of different yep. things. And it's got like more memory than a lot of servers actually have. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but, you know, they have like, you know, 64 gigs of, of memory on the NIC itself. So mm -hmm. does EPBF work with those yet or is that still a future thing? Because it doesn't. There's it integrations doesn't. that have to happen there, right? Yeah, there's like uh, so the the landscape looks like you've got Netronome, which I guess are a smaller player in the SmartNIC market, who yeah. have an offload for eBPF. So you can take a eBPF program and then turn that into instructions on their ASIC. So that that's cool because then yeah. that that that's a pretty pretty neat solution to to dealing with it. In terms of what the other vendors are doing. Uh, I mean, it's unclear. Like, I, I've had a look around at some SmartNICs, and you've basically got an entire Linux kernel running on the SmartNIC, and yeah. some like crazy stuff that takes packets from this one Linux kernel. Okay, over here I should have. I should have qualified over here, and then. So SmartNICs have actually been around for about thirty years, and in fact, most networking appliances use a SmartNIC, right? Which is a custom ASIC doing packet forwarding, and so a lot of the primitives of packet processing aren't done in the memory CPU complex like they are on cheap ass NICs. They're done on a smart NIC, which has a much more complicated ASIC and they're expensive. I th what I should have said was DPUs, so data processing units, right? And Netronome is one of those companies and there's a whole lot, there's a half a dozen of them in the smart NIC space and their ASIC 
and the software code that they run on the ASIC itself, on the NIC itself, can read EPPF premises and just accelerate them. There's a whole bunch of them. They just know the TCP stack and they know the Linux driver and they just accelerate it in hardware. Um, but what we're moving to is more like the DPU or Intel calls it the IPU or you know whatever, yep. but DPU is going to stick data processing unit, central processing unit, graphics processing unit, blah, blah. Um, and that actually has a completely different thing. EBPF, the, you know, will need to talk to the operating system. They're talking about putting Sonic in the smart in the DPU, and then you can do a whole lot more, right? So you, it'll actually start to to be interesting to see. It, it it will because they're kind of two very different things. Like ASICs are really good at having like mm. everything's fixed, right? You know, you, your mm. packet pipeline looks like this and you process these things in order and, you know, you you pop this header, you push this header, you do that. And ASICs are great at doing that. Mm. What they're terrible at is what EBPF does, which is general purpose programming, which is like, you know, I only want to drop this packet if, uh, mm. you know, this yeah. specific thing happens or like there's this other piece of memory thing that I'm going to read over here that does that. And, and that's not something that's easily... Like you can't easily represent that in ASIC. So whichever way you choose to program it, it's, it's very hard. But yeah, it's not because it will never happen. Yeah, EPPF is definitely going to improve Linux throughput and using Linux as a networking. So particularly around service mesh, there's a lot of push around, as I've seen, around service mesh and accelerating packet inspection and yep. things like decryption, on-box decryption, because the networking no longer bound by the kernel path and no longer bound by a, a, a non-maskable interrupt. Like, you know, hang on, just point it, stop what you're doing. The whole complex has to stop what it's doing while you clear the data off the neck. It's just, yeah. But, and I think, uh, yeah. I think the path to it is definitely uh, through hardware offloading, but it's also a long tail, right? Like OVS is the, the predominant offload right now. Mm. That's because it's been around for, you know, almost 10 years now. So, mm. uh, I mean, I think, XDP and TC getting offloaded, sorry, traffic control and Linux. I think that's kind of the, the early baby steps. I mean, and when it comes to performance, there's still zero copies that are happening, right? So like, you're not gonna magically get, you know, two X to performance. Uh, but, but when it comes into like filtering and things like that, I think it starts to make a lot of sense. Uh, and then the, the other, the, the splash of reality that I always throw towards Dave. So, you know, you, with EVPF, you're 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 saying, okay, I don't need to use these Linux kernel functions and networking, right? That have been around for 20, 30 years, well-known things. You, you now get to reinvent, you, you now get to implement ARP, you now get to implement your own encapsulations, you now get to implement. So, that, I mean, this is all like C code or Rust. Uh, that was for you, Dave. Uh, <laughs> that you're now having to go write these functions themselves. So like, for example, yeah. more kind of project, you know, it's like, in order to do some uh, tunneling and um, you know some like interface monkeying around, it's about eight thousand lines of C code for XDP. So like <laughs> nothing, nothing is cheap, nothing is free, and I think like lowering the barrier, like Dave's talking about, is super important for like yeah. the average the average idiot mm -hmm. like myself to go out there and, and leverage it. Yeah, there's there's a lot of work going on to try and figure out like how to how to get the two worlds to exist, right? If you've got a lot of stuff in the kernel that already works and isn't terribly bad, you should be able to use that from eBPF. So you want to use connection mm. tracking. There's already in the kernel. So like don't implement that yourself. Just call out to it. Um, mm. I thought EBPF was in user space, isn't it? Is it not in the kernel or is it No. All your EBPF programs get loaded into kernel and operate in kernel space. Right. Okay. 
but but they're in their own kind of protected little enclave right so uh they they can't do anything well they can do nefarious things but uh you know don't don't load nefarious programs into your system kids so so does eppf become a niche tool with specific use cases or does it become this is so much better all network processing is going to happen via eppf I, I think it becomes niche, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that there's enough. Uh, I, I don't think you're going to get enough value from like moving all your packet processing into EVPF because ultimately, if it's still getting executed on a CPU, it's going to be as fast as doing it any other way. The only difference being is that you can do it in kernel context rather than user space. So, sure, it'll, it, it might arguably be slightly faster, but you know, OVS does a good job, like. You know, but you're not really going to re-implement OVS and eBPF and, and win. I, I don't see that as being helpful. Well, OVS has been around for such a long time. It's had a single custodian pushing it forward, and it's also had VMware pushing it forward. Yep. So but the project has been largely sponsored or under the aegis of, and so it's got everything going for it in that sense. I think, though, that the other area where eBPF shines is really an XDP. And that's, mm. you know, looking is to be very promising for, you know, implementing things that need to deal with packet processing as quickly as possible. So if you so what- view XDP as a competitor to DBDK, mm. um, you know, that that's kind of the way I say it. You want to implement something which does a custom protocol, needs complete ownership of the packet, then XDP is the, the way to go for that. Might be worth explaining the difference between XDP and eBPF and DBDK. Because when you start talking about these things, like a lot of the a lot of the DPUs are emulating interfaces to those, and it gets confusing fairly. I know I get lost all the time and have to stop reading the paper and go back and go like. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a crazy, it's a crazy uh, software stack layer cake, right? Um, yeah. XDP is uh, Express Data Path, right? And and XDP is uh, um, uh, both an eBPF program type, so you can pull packets straight after DMA from the neck and do interesting things with them. Mm-hmm. You can do things with them in kernel space, which is in the CBPF program, or alternatively, there is a, a fancy technology called AFXDP, which is a, a special Linux socket type, which allows you to send these packets to user space where you can have a program which processes them really quickly. So in that way, uh, you know that user space uh, packet processing uh, the, the competitor to that would be DPDK, which is Intel's, uh, you know, a, a, a SDK for doing packet processing. Data processing developer kit, yeah. Data plane developer kit. That's the one. And one thing, actually, I think Dave and I were talking about it the other day, but contrasting, you know, EBPF XDP to um, OVSs. So, like, back in the day, if you need an OVS feature, you had to wait until it hit upstream in the kernel. And so that could be a long wait. And now as a developer, you're now not that you don't have to worry about kernel versions and things like that with EBPF because there's just as much of that. But a lot of the support's mm. kind of baked in because you're you're loading from user space. So like mm. as long as the hooks are there, you aren't limited by what's upstream in the kernel. That's the killer feature right there. Uh, if you wanted to explain to people why this is important, it's like thinking back to when we started doing crazy stuff in open daylight with VXLAN. 
And it was like, cool, we've got it working, but nobody could use it for five years because it took five years for that kernel version to make its way into an Ubuntu stable release or a RHEL stable release. Like we, we can bypass those constraints now because these eBPF mm. programs can be loaded by any kernel. So you can have that feature next week and not in five years. Yeah. And I think that... We don't have to. Powerful. We don't have to wait for Linus, who really doesn't like networking and doesn't like the networking stack much. And uh, as far as I can see, he's sort of a bit. He finds that people do working on the networking code to be a bit uh, disturbing or something. Is that? <laughs> am I reading I, the situation wrong? I, I I would not know. I'm not. I'm not yeah. a kernel developer, but mm. I, I would say that you know it's one of these things where it's a multi-stage process, right? You've got the networking subtree, which Dave Miller looks after. So you need to convince Dave and the people that maintain that tree that your patch is a good idea. And then eventually Dave will wrap that up and send that over to Linus uh, for inclusion. And then Linus will choose like, okay, yeah, this seems like a very good idea or not. He might take objection to it, but this is open yeah. source, right? And it's a process yeah, 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 yeah. that's worked very well for many years, <laughs> yeah. but it takes time. And <laughs> that's, that is, that therein yeah. lies the problem. Um, Any big organization, whether it's a company or an open source project, has the same problems. And none of this, none of this changes as far as I'm concerned. So. So eBPF is a technology that's not going to make its way into the product headline or whatever we productize around eBPF. It might be a footnote, a bullet point. Yeah, we use an eBPF to do this, but most people aren't going to know or care what that means. So what sort of products are we likely to see that eBPF is going to enable? That's a really good question. Uh, <laughs> so there, there's, a, there's a couple of interesting ones out there. Obviously, you, you've uh, mentioned the Cilium project, uh, which is your Kubernetes CNI, um, and that in itself, you know, and all of the observability and everything else they have layered on top of it is probably a really good demonstration of what you can do with eBPF. And definitely that's probably the most practical way that people will consume it. Um, but equally in technologies like things like service mesh, uh, things like load balancing, uh, DDoS protection, uh, all of these things could be implemented using eBPF and you know the technologies on the periphery. And I think that those will be the ones that end up making their way into product. Mm. You're talking about more packet forwarding stuff. What about on the security side of things? Yeah, on the security and observability side, because uh, that's obviously the other, uh, you know, I've just got my network blinders on because, you know, <laughs> eBPF is so vast. Uh, the, the fact is, on the security side, there's a whole load of cool stuff you can do. Uh, there's things like continuous dynamic profiling. So you can uh, monitor exactly what an application is doing and build up a profile of what it looks like when it's in steady state and what it looks like when it goes haywire. And if you see it going haywire, then you can shut the thing down. Uh, you know, you, you can, it's very easy to build a security product around that. Um, mm. There's also things like, uh, you know, just basic system call filtering. Uh, so, you know, make sure that things can't escalate uh, their privileges. There's, there's a whole lot that you can do in the security space, which, you know, I think we're just seeing, um, with, like very recently, there's now uh, a Linux security module uh, BPF program type. So you can kind of replace the entirety of things like AppArmor and SE Linux with BPF programs, which are way more flexible than the type of policy that you'd have been able to write previously. So you can get very fine grained uh, with your security policy on Linux now. That's it, yeah. And I'm right that eBPF is looking at a packet before it ever hits the part of the networking stack that would do encryption and then put it on the wire, right? Yeah, like uh, and exactly the same thing. Like the minute that uh, a process on Linux says, I want to send data on a UDP socket, 
eBPF can intercept it at that moment. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and the same from a security standpoint. Uh, if uh, a process says, "I want to make the system call," you know, you can get that before it hits the network. So there's a lot of stuff now which we're able to push up front. Uh, you know, we can kind of get the, the the system to protect itself rather than having to bake all of the intelligence into the network or, uh, mm. you know, uh, deal with heuristics. I do wonder, the thing that's been in the back of my mind about all the things you said about EPPF are great, and I'm really excited about it because it changes the way Linux handles networking. But what uh, to come back to the DPUs, what we're actually seeing is firewall or security vendors put apps in DPUs. And that's so you can now, they've this is announced, this isn't secret, but you actually have an, you know, a software-defined tool that programs the NICs and then you load a firewall onto the DPU and you'll be able to buy your favorite brand of, fire, of security product and they'll instantiate the firewall in the NIC uh, using their code because that's, how, that, because that's what a physical firewall is. It's an Intel motherboard with a smart NIC in it and the operating system has got some network drivers to take advantage of the ASIC in the do the processing and then sometimes they have a cavium chip or you know some sort of ssl decryptor on the same nick and blah 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 right it's not there's no magic in the hardware of a firewall it's all commodity stuff that comes off the shelf that was set in that was set 15 years ago in the in the early 2000s that that all standardized way 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 back well so Greg, be interested. Greg, your point here is that yeah. we don't have to worry about eppf processing of packets in the kernel if there's a smart nick dpu that is handling that stuff effectively outside of the main processing unit. I think I was just drawing attention to the fact that there's a diversity of approaches. So mm. I could implement the firewall or the security or the inspection functionality in software in near to or inside the Linux kernel, which is viable. But what we're also seeing is that there's a another approach using DPUs, which is uh, the computer inside the computer type of thing. And yep. there's going to be a tension there and customers are going to have to, like people like us are going to have to make a decision about which way we want to go. And I just wanted to draw attention to the differentiation there. I think, I mean, so the, and the macro is, is certainly this disaggregation, right? We're, we're taking, we're taking North South traffic models where we had centralized firewalls and we're disaggregating everything out for an East West traffic profile. Mm -hmm. um, I think regardless of the technology that's used, that is the direction uh, the the caveat is who the hell is going to manage this. So if you can barely manage your enterprise data center firewalls today, and that's you know a pair of them or a cluster of them, how are you going to manage that spread across ten thousand nodes? Um, like, mm. yeah, there's a there's a serious management problem there. And so are you going to rely on single orchestrators? And you know, I mean, that's obviously it's up to stack, but that's well, that's, that's where networking people need to think about as opposed to. Um, you know, like that, I think that's where the big gap between networking and, and sysadmins can are. Well, wait a minute, though. I mean, this, this is, from some perspectives, this is a solved problem. If you look at micro-segmentation, let's say you've got a centralized controller that profiles what's going on, comes up with your baseline security policy, pushes it out in monitor mode, and then when you like it, you flip the switch and off you go. But it's all managed centrally, and that's how you do it. You scale by your two thousands of devices that you're managing but just by centrally managing with a policy manager. Is that, what am I missing, Brent? No, absolutely, fair enough. So, and I guess my point is, how, how, do, you, how do you integrate that with the application developer? I mean, that's, that's I think, the, the big trend now is, so do you have, do, do networking people stand in the way of that policy getting instantiated? Do, do, does, does SecOps get in the way of that? 
or can application developers take an existing profile and instantiate that right alongside with their application they're spinning mm-hmm. up? So if I was doing Kubernetes and I just had you know stock x86 boxes under it, I'd want to be using eBPF. But if I've got a data center, you know, off-prem, on-prem, like if I'm a cloud provider, you know, a, a, an at scale prep, I'm going to use DPUs because there's a whole bunch of things I can do writing a platform, you know, a software API to use those those data processing and load the operating system and load the apps and control them and debug them and monitor them. That's doable for that. But for a certain type of solution, some people is just going to say, like, maybe it makes sense to just do it in eBPF and you know, not everybody drives their x86 servers at 99% utilization, right? The problem is, right, when you want to use both, and, and, mm. and that's where I, I struggle to, to reconcile this in my mind, is that there's definitely some things that eBPF can do really well, and you'd want to do regardless of whether you have a DPU on your system or not. But we all know that packet packet blasting on an ASIC is going to be faster than doing it in in general purpose. Mm-hmm. So yeah, how and do you marry those two worlds? Like how, yes. how do you and even if you even if you're using and even if you're using DPDK on an Intel CPU, which is doing packet acceleration, right? There is some standard. If if your server has only got a 25 gig NIC in it, the argument's moot. Having a DPU is not going to make much difference unless you're, you know. But if you're a cloud provider and you're running, you know, 400 to one, 400 VMs on a single server, and you've got a hundred gig interface in there, and now you want to put a firewall on there so that you can stop, you know, add a seller firewall service that's associated with the VM or the container that they're, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's a whole different, you know, bag of buns, as they say. Do they say <laughs> yeah. that? Bag of buns? I don't know. I don't know, but I, I think, think you know. might have just coined that one. Mm. <laughs> I'm, I'm craving a bag of donuts to be fair but you know maybe i don't know i interrupt this podcast for a look back and a look ahead with sponsor ns1 let's look back first when i was the hostmaster for a regional isp i would build zone files for my customers by hand in bind using vi the bind server didn't have much in the way of intelligence bind just served up the a records and the c names etc and we hostmasters would observe things like transactions per second and query response times and those were our success metrics woohoo and 20 plus years ago that was fine but as we catch up to today you're going to want actual intelligence in your dns which is what ns1 gives you you stand up your ns1 account in the cloud it's a SaaS service and do your configuration like you'd expect and then ns1 can make sure that as client requests come through they get handed off to the server that will give that end user the best experience how does ns1 deliver this well ns1 is globally distributed and they take measurements from everywhere billions of measurements on a variety of metrics and all that metadata gives intelligence to the dns routing decision let's say your application delivery stack is all over a variety of public clouds and some of your own dcs or colos and some cdns that you're using ns1 is what you're looking for to squeeze every ounce of performance between client and server from your apps So if you're supporting that sort of an organization, the cloud native org, right? Then the answer to your next question is yes. What was the question? Does NS1 support automation in my pipelines? You know, all the DevOps stuff. Yeah, absolutely. NS1 is a Terraform provider, a well-documented API that's public as well. In fact, you can go to their API docs. It's all public. You don't even have to climb a reg wall. 
there's more NS1 stuff that we could talk about. For example, NS1 has partnerships with Catchpoint, Thousand Eyes, Datadog, and Ansible, and more. And there's some other really interesting use cases, like their VPN traffic steering one, which really captured my attention. NS1 also works with some of the biggest infrastructures in the world, like eBay, Dropbox, Salesforce, LinkedIn, and more. And if they can support those guys, I mean, I think they're certainly worth putting on your DDI evaluation list. For more information, visit ns1.com slash packetpushers. That's ns1.com slash packetpushers for a free account, and they'll even throw in some swag for you. ns1.com slash packetpushers. And now, back to today's episode. I think the question is, though, like, Greg, who, who's going to buy DPUs? And I think in some ways, like you've mentioned, it's only people that are really trying to drive their servers for that 100% CPU utilization. They can't afford to have I any have, of that on network processing. I have every faith that HP, Dell, and Cisco will be out there adding value to their core products, and customers will blindly buy it because they were told to. <laughs> I heard a story the other day of a customer who bought uh, a thousand DPUs from a, uh, a company who sells a DPU solution, and uh, they went to deploy them, and and uh, none of it worked. Like not not that it didn't work for them, it just didn't work. And so now they're sitting on several million dollars worth of DPUs and can't do anything with them. And they were bought them because they were somewhere in the sales cycle. They were told to buy them. So. Wow. Right. So I, you know, any, the assumption that there is a, that the customer is a rational buyer and consumer of products is not valid. Sorry. That doesn't wash with me. Thanks. Thanks for that advertisement of moving everything to the cloud, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> that was a cloud that bought them. Oh, <laughs> just, so yeah, <laughs> just, just, yeah. Failure is universal, shall we say? Yes. Brian, I wanted to get your take on what's going on with all the CNCF projects that are out there, because there's a lot of them. They keep adding more, and it's a bit of a, a mess when we start looking at some of the networking stuff, where it can be puzzling to know what projects to place your bets on that is uh, got good community around it and got legs and all that stuff. Give me your take, Brent. Yeah, I mean, if you go to CNCF landscape, you know, you kind of have to like go to the moon, get a telescope out and kind of zoom in on what product you're looking for. So it's uh, <laughs> it's pretty busy, uh, to say the least. Uh, it, it's also a sign of how healthy uh, I think um, open source is becoming, which is amazing and awesome. Uh, at the same time, I think you still you're always going to struggle in open source when big companies come in that they want to push in, you know, either the failed project that's in the corner that never, you know, caught any tractions. Like, oh, let's chuck that over the fence and open source it and, you know, put lipstick on the pig, as they say. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it, it's always a tough problem. I think, I, I, and I think the, the, more com the more kind of pictures you put on that deck, the more complex it gets. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I think most customers are going to want a single throw to choke. I know my days in ops, it was like, sure, we might be able to shave off some money. Uh, but when you're understaffed and, um, you know, running on shoestring budgets, uh, being able to call that one, one vendor up and, and choke the throat is, uh, you know, there's something to be, something to be said for that. So, uh, yeah, integrations are tough yeah. and they're not. Insert Greg's easier. rant of riding around on, you know, <laughs> IT executives are incompetent, unable to hire, <laughs> unwilling to train staff, unwilling to retain staff who actually know what they're doing more than happy to let somebody else do it and then be able to blame them. Like, you know, I'll put it in the public cloud. 
the club of cloud's not better, but at least I've got someone to blame when everything goes wrong, and it's not me. So, yep. I mean, yeah, and that is the that is the use case for cloud, in my opinion. Right? You can you can mm. probably do it cheaper and maybe as well uh, with uptime, mm. but you're also gonna you're, you're taking on a lot more accountability than you would if you shipped it off to the cloud. Can you send me to some safe bet projects in the CNCF where you feel? There's maturity here, lots of community, lots of adoption. And so folks are looking into adopting, as they build out their own infrastructure cloud natively, these are products, projects that are worth uh, taking on. Yeah, so any, any of the projects that are kind of graduated are super safe. They're going to have tons of community. I mean, Prometheus is a simple example. Like that's, that, that is the de facto now. Everybody uses it. It's well understood. Um, so, you know, I, I think kind of following the herd in that sense is probably a smart play um, because if you're going to fail, we're all going to fail collectively and you're not looking like the, you know, that guy that took too much risk. <laughs> Obviously, you are taking a little bit of a little bit more risk than you would if you, you know, you bought a rolled solution from a vendor uh, mm. or a closed source project. But, uh, you know, the community is getting big enough now to where it's uh, the support's there, even on the open source side. If you want commercial support for about anything, it's going to be there. You said the keyword of a graduated project. Mm -hmm. That is the graduation process that projects that end up getting brought into the CNCF go through. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I haven't participated very much in one of those. Dave, have you, uh, have you actually gone soup to nuts on those? I, I have not. However, uh, I would say that, you know, the, the, the bar to getting into the CNCF appears to be relatively low. Like everybody seems to have jumped on the open source hype train of I'm going to open source something and I'm going to donate it to the CNCF for some validation and become a sandbox <laughs> project. And I think that's why, you know, that, that big landscape is getting so big. You know, it, it takes a lot more work and effort to move something through to the incubation state. And when something finally gets into graduated, you know, you've got at least two uh, major companies contributing to it. Um, so, that, you know, and, and a healthy community. And I think, you know, if you in terms of safety for bets, like it, it has to be sitting in graduated incubating. There's a good chance, you know, it could get there. And if there's an active community and people actually want to push it that far, then, you know, you, you might find some good stuff there. But there's there's a lot in the sandbox. Um, yeah. yeah. Sandbox to graduate is about a 30 to 1 ratio. So, <laughs> right. Well, at least it's Darwin a it is, full effect. <laughs> yeah, which is different from some of the other foundations that we've seen, like the Linux Foundation doesn't take anybody on unless they feel like, Right, and it's and then then the accusations become it's a wall garden. You don't participate in the, and what they're saying is no, no, no. We want to take on projects that have critical mass, and they're going to succeed. Right, so the CNCF sort of looked at that and said, well, the other way to do that is to allow anybody to wash up on the shore, but not everybody creeps out of the you know grows legs and creeps out of the primal slime to become a full fledged project. So here's a beach <laughs> for you to crawl out right. of the primal slime, and. Uh, then it's up to you to make it to the next, you know, to, to, to start breathing and to grow legs and crawl up on land sort of thing. That metaphor, man, that's like me getting out of bed every morning. <laughs> <laughs> that's me going back to bed, going to bed every night. Like, oh, geez, what did I do today? It feels like nothing. <laughs> just like, it's just, 
you know, yeah. COVID stuff is getting a bit uh, getting a bit grim. Like the, the walls are starting to close in. You're an athlete, man. You've been you've been training for this. <laughs> look, he's saying it. Look, he's calling that oh, yeah. one out. You and I are both. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't left the county in like ten years. It's it's amazing. <laughs> Since the last event that you were forced to attend, right. it's been a while, exactly. hasn't it? Because exactly. we used to see each other at events, and then we all stopped. We sort of got bored with them fairly quickly. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's sad, but uh, the the beauty of our community is, you know, if you haven't seen somebody in five years, you, it's just like you picked up where uh, where you left off because we're all we're all kind of going through the through similar similar tribulations here. Mm. So I I want to ask another question here, and it's not a repeat of do all engineers need to become coders because that's been kind of rehashed to death. I and it's it's honestly that that conversation is a little boring. But what I am interested in is what role developers play on ops teams these days and what does that look like? There's different models. You can have a dedicated developer that isn't in ops but is off to the side and kind of devoted to building tools for your team perhaps. Or maybe you do have some engineers that pick up some coding skills. I mean, you guys have lived in both worlds. Um, give, us, uh, give us your take on how coding and ops fit in an infrastructure as code world. I mean, so the, the number one thing, in my opinion, my subjectively always right opinion is the, the first thing people should start doing is, is just following the pattern of DevOps, right? So like, if you're going to, if you're going to make changes to your network, let's, let's kind of start treating that as code. Like you don't necessarily mm. have to have a full Git pipeline for it, uh, but it, it sure, certainly should probably be the goal to get to because you, you now have this review process that's much more streamlined. Uh, useful. It's not just some random middle manager on a change control call saying, sure, do that. I have no idea what the implications are. I have no idea if your tests, uh, if there are any tests uh, other than you saying, yeah, I tested it. Uh, I can actually look look at, at, the, uh, at what's going in, what, what we're saying is the declarative state of the network after this change goes in, uh, and mm. then, then you can start automating it. Um, but at the same time, like you can't forget fundamentals. And like, that's, that's the importance of that network operator background that uh, I think in some of the hyperscale we're starting to see. So I'm going to pick on Facebook because they make tons of money as engineers. So mm -hmm. when their East coast pop goes down and they don't have out of band, like anybody that's been in networking ops for any amount of time knows you never make a change to a remote site without you know an out of band your back door yeah. into into the gear well you said so, facebook but we're actually dumping on aws here but yeah that mm. was, uh, was yeah. the aws outage it was, was facebook not. two months ago and it's aws yesterday Today. yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. sorry i'm uh, <laughs> yeah i'm always two months behind so uh, yeah <laughs> but so, so what something happens when you don't get out of the house <laughs> right something interesting here brent is um okay that's picking up dev methodologies to push code into production is a different skill set from writing code. Now, there, there may, there's some overlap there, but you're actually talking about the whole pipeline testing, version control, being able to roll back. Um, you said uh, your declarative state so that I actually know what the state of the network is and can, can get back to a known good state because I've got golden config stored off to the side. Uh, that that's really what you're getting at as the main focus for ops people. Is that true? 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I used to think that everybody should go out and like write packet parsers. Um, I don't think that's very useful necessarily because a lot of it's wheel reinvention. So a lot of the tools are out there. A lot of the mechanisms are out there. Like Linux has a fantastic kernel uh, networking mm -hmm. suite that you just leverage and that just works. So do you really need to get into the weeds? Uh, almost, almost always it's going to be a no. Um, but I do think like having that systems oriented, so we're pushing everything to the edge, right? And we were talking about this a little bit before, like the, the fundamental change in networking, I think that's happened over the SDN transition is, is functionality is getting pushed out to the edge. So just like where we used to have MPLS PEs on the edge of you know, your, your perimeter, mm -hmm. uh, that, that's just gone one layer down. And now we're seeing it in, in the, in, in the uh, system on the, you know, the, the far edge. Mm -hmm. um, so starting to treat networks as just distributed systems um, and kind of taking that approach probably makes the most sense to me. Uh, and that, the, the slippery slope from that is you start writing code and you start automating things, right? So it's, mm. I, I think you, you gradually step into being a DevOps person. I, I think the other element of it is as well is, is not being scared to be either embedded with or working very closely with an application team like that. Whether or not organizationally it's going to happen inside your company, because, you know, maybe having silos works for them, uh, you know, breaking down those barriers is really important because ultimately what you're doing, like the network is fundamental to the application. It's there to serve the applications. The applications are the thing that makes the business money. So, like, be nice, like work, work with the app team, you know, attend their standard meetings, figure out what they're trying to build and, you know, get involved in it. Because what I see from, you know, the view that I've uh, <clears throat> been looking at with containers and orchestration and everything else, a lot of things which would have been traditional network ops stuff, like firewall policies, network policies and other stuff, are all moving into that application realm so you know it will get represented as a api object in kubernetes and it's not mm -hmm. going to touch you know the firewall anymore so like you as a network engineer you know network policy really well go teach the application developers how to do it properly like work with them and go do it with them and learn something along the way you know learn how to write yaml because out of necessity uh get involved in the application i think really that's that's where i see things moving um be flexible it sounds mm -hmm. like such a straightforward value proposition when you say it that way, Dave, but it's just like <laughs> trying mm -hmm. to explain to someone else who doesn't know your technical discipline, what they need to know to do something pretty technical is, is a, that's a heavy lift. It, it really is. Cause I, I, is, I've been yeah. there. I remember laughing at people ages ago when I was in network ops, because it was like, ha, look at the lab team doing dumb stuff, like hard coding IP addresses. <laughs> and they know about <laughs> DNS is all going to go really really so badly I did, a, oh, well. I did a gig many years ago by somebody who was really really early in the cycle of devops and stand-ups this is like way before stand-ups became popular and uh the the person that was in charge was actually one of the people who in, invented the whole idea of all of this you know agile and all that sort of stuff and i was involved with the project for about seven weeks um and they had massive networking problems and I'd be standing in the stand-ups with no idea what they're doing because they'd be blathering on about blah, 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 and module this. And it took like four weeks for me. And then I would start to say, I stood up one time and said, look, this isn't going to work because the network can't do it. And they just looked at me as though I was like an alien from another planet. <laughs> and they went, but you can't say it can't be solved. And I went like, no, no, we're in a big company. And to do that would require a hundred gig link from here to here that would cost roughly a million dollars a year. 
and no one's going to pay for it. It doesn't matter how much you think that streaming high-res video is a great idea and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's just, you know, for all intents and purposes, impossible. Well, that led to me leaving three weeks later because I wasn't allowed to say. <laughs> You're not allowed to say, can't be done. And I was like, I'm sorry, you just can't. And they went like, so off I went and tried to work out a way that it could be done. And the answer was always no. And uh, sure enough, the project sort of stumbled into a collapsed state about nine months later, I heard. But because it couldn't be done. So, but anyway. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. Do I get a badge I, that I, says, I told you so? I want, <laughs> I want a badge that says, I told you so. You That's should get I'm one. Doing. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give you a T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> now you you both mentioned this idea of being embedded more on the with an app team because they're going to be doing in an automated way because you can now with Kubernetes etc. They're going to be delivering some of the infrastructure that's going to bound how an application is delivered. That's going to be part of what they do, and so you know train them on stuff. But let, let's flip it on its head. There's another developer role here, which is like, hey, ops people need tools. I'm going to develop tools for the ops people to make their job easier. Is that a, is that a thing? That, that's I like, think so. That's the panacea, right? Like, who doesn't want to do? What network person doesn't want to build tools? I mean, we were building tools in Perl five twenty years ago. So, like, <laughs> I mean, we were kind of doing this and didn't really realize it. Um, but like, there's so much. I mean, there's more data going through a network than any other RDBMS on your on your network, more than likely, right? Like, I mean, the the, the the ability to mine data and take all that data and do something with it is pretty limitless and it's, it's barely touched. Uh, so like, I don't know, like, I, I think observability is a, is a great front to kind of get your feet wet. Um, know what's going on in your network. Do you know what's going on in your network? Do you have a feeling, are you able to anticipate where your next problem is going to be in your network or are you going to react to it? Um, if you're my service provider, you're going to react to it and you're not going to have any ability to proactively fix a problem at all until a customer calls you. A customer should never call you reporting an outage. So, I mean, just like basic stuff, um, you know, and I think, and these are all pretty low hanging fruit to uh, go out and kind of build tools around. Like there's so much open source available. Um, somebody's probably already doing it and you can leverage it at work. Yeah, and and you know, in in some cases, you know, in uh, there's this magical SRE role, which you know sits within you know the application team, but is more focused on you know making sure the app works and performs correctly. And I think there's definitely a network angle to be had there as well, because the network is fundamental, right? And and these people would have to understand the code a little uh, a little more. You know, you you're kind of sitting somewhere between development and and pure operations and, and I definitely see that there's a the parallel there to be had for networking you know it, it, it can, how much of how much stuff can we actually exfiltrate from the application itself about its uses of the network so that we can provide more context into networking issues that happen like further into the core like that, that there's definitely like a lot of data that could be mined and tools that can be built around that for sure like in three to six months, you can you can learn how to build basic programs. Some people yeah. can probably learn in a week. If you're me, it's going to take you significantly longer. But I can't teach somebody networking in three to six months. Hmm. I'll be lucky if I can teach somebody networking three to six years, um, because the, there's the, it, it just is what it is. There's a high level of complexity around it. So it's, what's uh, a distributed system? Teaching people distributed systems is like even in programming. 
the number of people who can program distributed in distributed systems is a fraction of the total. Most people think of programming as I run the program on a single place or in a serverless, and it's it's and they, it's it's a focus on a single thing, and you know that and it will make a call and read a database and it will process it will munge a thing and whatever. But a network is a distributed system. That at least this is what I think. There's a fundamental difference between networking and servers, or networking and storage, or networking in any cloud. In that we think of things as distributed systems, and not even distributed; it's federated. So every every networking device in the market today has to have the same protocols: Ethernet, IP, has to use a routing protocol, which is of a limited number of choices. Typically these days, only BGP, and you know. You can have any distributed system you like, as long as it uses Ethernet, IP, BGP, forwards <laughs> packets in a predictable manner. Right? It has to use the same APIs, everything. So you can build an amazing distributed system from a very, very, you know. But if you make a change to BGP over here, you might actually cause a problem. You know, as we know, you know, the famous YouTube mm-hmm. outage. Pakistan makes a change, and all of a sudden, YouTube's down. So. <laughs> more projects have failed because of like state tracking and then like anything else in SDN. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you know, it, it's like many things, right? I think, you know, we, we're becoming like, there's definitely still a role for network specialists. I think that that's something which, you know, is, is something which is really important, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be sort of extending in the other direction as a generalist, like you should still be able to understand what the application is doing, still be able to understand the deployment model and bring some of your deep network expertise into some of these other problem spaces, because you're right. We know distributed systems inherently mm. because we, we learned that through networking and some of the learning there is really relevant to like what application teams are trying to build. Like Greg, your example from years ago, it's like, no, that won't work. Physics. Sorry, guys. Just mm. yeah. this isn't going to happen. Like yeah. <laughs> if you don't have that feel for it, like you, you're just not going to know that up front. So being able to surface like insights like that is is really important. How much longer can I get a job as a network specialist as opposed to needing to get a job as a generalist who happens to have as a really strong bullet point on their resume networking expertise? Love it. I love it. Um, you know, I, I think I think some of it depends on cloud adoption. So you're, you're always going to need like as long as you have users and seats, you're always going to need, you know, networking people at, at the edge there. Um, remote work has definitely changed some of that. So. Uh, that, that's a big question mark. I mean, obviously there's wireless too out there that's um, exploding and it's never going to stop. Are well, you talking about uh, effectively access layer stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like that, that touch is always going to be there. But as the intelligence moves to that access layer as well, um, it's not like it's not just dumb VLANs on a, on a tour anymore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, as much as we would like it to be at times. Um, or, and it's not just as simple as, you know, BGP running to a tour either, unfortunately. So uh, I, you know, I, I don't see it changing anytime soon. Um, and especially if the pendulum swings back out of the cloud, there's, there's an interesting argument there as well. You can probably do it cheaper and more efficiently if you're willing to take on that, you know, the responsibility of managing your, your network. If you really want to yeah, deal with I power think and it's, cooling. It's a demand shift, right? I think we'll see eventually. So I think for now, you're still going to be very easily readily employed as a specialist. But as time goes on, there will be less need for specialists and more need for, for generalists. 
And I think it doesn't mean that there's not going to be not going to be network specialists. It's just going to be there's, there will be less demand in the market for it. Oh, it's funny. Being a network specialist always was accompanied by you're better at your job as a network engineer if you know how web servers work and can really get into right. the guts of HTTPS, for example, because at some point you're going to be sitting on a call where there's SSL troubleshooting going on because of reasons. And as soon as you can under the better you understand what's really going on under the hood, the more likely it is you're going to be the one that can push the problem towards an effective solution as opposed to going network's fine, it's not me, and then walking away. Mm. Yeah. And, and I think the, the early shift into it came around load balancers because that was where like applications mm. and network people really kind of intersected. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's, firewalls. yeah, and, and certainly firewalls as well. Um, but I, I think like now you're talking about application state and you're talking about changing that state and you're, you're rewriting headers. Uh, yeah. And the load exactly. balancing problem is not solved. There's like, if there's one, you know, if you're going to try and raise money on down Menlo park or something, you probably load balancing is a, is a good path to take. Um, because that's, that's a problem that's far from solved. You can't, you wouldn't get funded at the moment because everything's got to be, a have a security angle mm. is my instinctive response. Like right yeah, now. Well, you're load balancing. Yeah, yeah, if you could have I mean, a, if you could have a, a firewall load balancer that, <laughs> like, look at F five was a load balancer. What are they now? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're absolutely right. And and mm. the, the the masking that takes place with a load balancer, you you know, I'd certainly argue there's a security aspect to it as well. People aren't able to connect directly to backend nodes. They're going through the central choke point. So it certainly makes sense to, uh, you know, have your security hat on as well. Yeah, just light up the WAF. That's that's what that's what's that that's what it's there for, right? Network load balancer, <laughs> enable the WAF functionality, off you go. Security. Yes. Yes. At least that used to be true. But guys, it's been a great conversation. Uh interesting way to open up 2022. I mean, this wasn't the first year we published this year, but pretty early on, thinking about things that are coming that are going to matter a lot and how to position ourselves. I appreciate your insights. You guys have been Again, like I said in the intro, deep in the guts of what's been going on with networking and cutting edge networking for a while. And uh, how can folks follow you, Brent, starting with you? Uh, I am on Twitter at Network Static. I blog annually at uh, networkstatic.net, and I'm <laughs> terrible lately. Uh, so, yeah, New Year's resolution. Here we go. I think, uh, I think the pandemic caused a, uh, a hiatus in just about everybody who writes blogs because I haven't right, been able right. to, you know. Yeah, <laughs> and the, then Dave uh, Tucker, same question to you. Yeah, you you might find me on on Twitter at uh, Dave underscore Tucker. But you know, since since the pandemic, I've also taken a hiatus from social media. So uh, yeah, you you may find me lurking on some discords and Slack around uh, Rust and eBPF. Just one other is uh, so we've Dave, Kyle Mestri, and uh, Tom Nadeau and I've been uh, we've been doing some you know, podcasting, riding on the shoulders of, of our, our forefathers and you guys. And, uh, you know, so we've been uh, doing some podcasting at the, the net.lol if anybody's interested in hearing about virtual networks and kind of this niche, niche space. Um, and we want to have you guys on because, you know, one, I, I want to throw one thing out uh, is like there was this waterfall effect over the past 10 years. And, and from my experience, you guys were were a big part in in me transitioning from like this, you know, random CCIE that just cares about you know hardware and gear into 
starting to think there there are other ways to do it uh, rather than the vendor saying to do it. So, you know, I mean, I think there was like, there was a research side, there was a software side, and then there was a community side. And you guys were, were definitely on the, the spearhead of that. So props and, um, you know, a lot of respect to you guys for it. Thanks for saying so. And Thanks, he brought man. a lot of other people along in the community. So, And the, again, your podcast that you're doing with uh, uh, you and Dave and Kyle Mestry and Tom Nadu is the net.lol. It is indeed. Perfect. There's a link to that in the show notes. If you're interested in checking out their podcast. And uh, if you've got value from this episode, you out there in the audience that made it all the way to the end, if you got value from this, but you want even more, hey, Packet Pushers has a Slack group. It's at packetpushers.net slash Slack. It is free. And you will be joining over 1,800 IT engineers, networking and cloud nerds, especially. They're the world over. There's the there's someone active in there just about all the time. And again, packetpushers.net slash Slack. And uh, if you could pop in there, check out the jobs channel. There's opportunities posted if you're looking for a career change. And a lot of people have been taking advantage of that, either posting opportunities or saying, hey, I'm looking for something. If another Slack group feels like you just can't i mean i get that so go to our newsletter instead maybe human infrastructure magazine we send it out weekly and uh, the goal is to make you a better engineer we share good stuff about career performing complex technical tasks it news that we think you might be actually affected by as an engineer and we also do some heavily curated quick takes on vendor announcements and i do mean heavily curated because most vendor announcements are let's face it they suck last but not least remember that too much networking would never be enough